so loneliness in America, I think, has so much to do with our individualism. Like there's this sort of make it on our own way of thinking in America. Like we're not a very community minded people. If we think about like American stories and the cowboy, you know, the most one of the most American symbols there is. The cowboy is all about being an outsider, about being alone. We suggest that there's something like noble about that, that that's something to aspire to. And I think that's really wrong. And I think we need to really fight against that way of thinking because we we really need each other. And I think the pandemic showed us how much we need each other in a pretty significant way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'm going to be speaking with author Kristen Radke. Kristen's written an incredible new book called Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. It's an illustrated book that explores the notion of loneliness, its causes, its effects, and Radke's own relationship with it in her life. This book is beautiful, it's moving, and at times mind-blowing. I love the way Radke combined science and evocative imagery to really hammer her points home. I learned so much from this book, I can't recommend it enough. Be sure to check it out. But before we get to today's conversation, just want to remind you of a few things. First of all, you can always find more episodes of the show at culturallyrelevantshow.com. I also want to thank all of my patrons at patreon.com slash Dave Chen for making my work and this podcast possible. Specifically, I want to thank my executive producer patrons, Steve, Scott Wackeltz, Stephen Miller, Sid Yadav, Stephen Austin, Dan Flanagan, Jeff Evans, and Mark Warner, as well as all the other fine patrons over at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. If you enjoy my podcasts, uh, if you enjoy my YouTube videos, if you enjoy all the audio stuff I do online, check out patreon.com slash Dave Chen for some exclusive audio and video content. I'm putting a lot of work into it these days, and I'm really grateful for the response. All right, let's get to this conversation for today. Kristen Radke is the author of Imagine Wanting Only This, and she's the current art director of TheVerge.com, one of my most read websites. Her work has appeared in places such as The New York Times, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, Vogue, and NPR.org. And her new book, Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness, can be purchased right now at bookshop.org, or at your local independent bookseller. Here's my conversation with Kristen, and stick around afterwards for our weekly recommendations. One last thing, by the way, I wanted to mention that Kristen did this interview from her apartment in New York City, and that occasionally you might hear traffic noises or other noises in the background. Uh, I tried to minimize that, but uh, it couldn't be helped sometimes, so I hope you understand and enjoy the conversation. Thanks. Kristen Radke, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, David. I usually like to start with breaking in stories. Uh, and so I'm curious, like, how did you first break into the industry as a writer and an artist? Um, good question. I, um, you know, I went to graduate school for writing and I just sort of started drawing a little bit while I was there, but not until the end. I mean, I was always writing and I was always drawing and it took me a long time to figure out you could do them together. Like I didn't grow up in a town with a comic book shop or anything like that. Or if I did, I like wasn't cool enough to know about it. Um, so I just, it took me a while to figure out what my medium was. And then after that happened, like sort of at the tail end of graduate school, I just started working in that in that medium. And I think the first publications I got um, I started doing illustrated book reviews and I found that to be like a way that I could kind of break in because people were like, this is weird and different. And book editors were just, you know, like excited to see something that was different than what they were normally publishing. And I, you know, got paid zero dollars for it, but it was sort of my foot in the door. 
Yeah, I, I would say that when I read Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness, I was reminded a lot of the graphic novel format, I guess, mm, mm-hmm. even though this is not a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious if you have read any graphic novels or uh, anything that is of the media that you are making in this format that has inspired you over the years. Yeah, I mean, I read tons of graphic novels. I My day job is, I was previously the art director of The Believer, where I edited comics. I'm just starting as the art director of The Verge, where I'll also be editing comics in addition to doing other kinds of art direction. So, I mean, comics are really important to me, and they're a big part of, I think, how I think through the world and kind of high process ideas. So, I mean, tons of, it's hard for me to even think of listing them all. Tons of artists, you know, Adrian Tomine, Alison Bechdel, you know, kind of like the big heavy hitters, Chris Ware, um, have all, I think, inspired me a lot um, to make work. I I also really love um, Walter Scott and Nick Jonasso, and I, I recommend you all pick up their books. Wonderful. Um, what would you call the book, by the way, if not a graphic novel? I know this is kind of a weird question, but like... Yeah, I don't, I, I don't I really thinking, care. Like, what would the terminology be, yeah. if anything? Yeah. Like, I feel like with comics, people get kind of hung up on the naming of it because like comics signifies this huge, like people think of like superheroes or like manga or something like that. And when you think graphic novel, you might think of like the walking dead or the Watchmen or something, but not necessarily something like what I made, which is like you said, nonfiction. So, I mean, people can call it whatever they want. I tend to call it like, I, I tend to just call it a graphic novel, even though that's not technically correct because I think it's as close as possible to right, like um, as and that's where it gets shelved. Exactly, that's yeah, where it's going to be at Barnes and Noble. You know, it's going to be in the graphic novel section. Right. Uh, got it. Got it. So, let's start with a basic question about the book. Mm. What made you want to write about loneliness? I don't think anything made me want to write about loneliness so much as I just realized I started thinking about loneliness a lot. I was it, the project started in 2016. I began this project for the New Yorker where I was drawing people who were alone in public settings. And I was, you know, it was just kind of like a mopey thing I was doing when I was in my late twenties. And I, you know, 2016 was a a weird year for reasons we probably don't have to mention. And I was just feeling kind of isolated. And so I started thinking about loneliness in not very interesting scientific terms. And then I started thinking, well, what is the science of loneliness? Like what actually is loneliness? Why do we feel it? And I started I kind of just got sucked into the research. Is there an experience or a set of experiences from your life that you think make loneliness resonate with you? Well, I think I've always been predisposed to loneliness. And I think artists and writers often are. I think like, why would you choose this path if you were like fulfilled? (laughs) You know, it's just like a stupid (laughs) thing to do. Um, Uh, Meaning meaning a path in which you need to spend like a lot of time, presumably alone, uh, drawing things. Yeah. And also it's just like a dumb job. Like, why wouldn't you do something like that, like better or more interesting (laughs) or like less torturous and like less filled with rejection and, you know, like agony, you know, and like there, I think there are probably better paths to go down if you're like a more adjusted, well-adjusted person, but that's, fa- that's fascinating. I, mean, I feel like I feel like I have like a lot of respect for artists. You know, like I feel like you know they take like a blank canvas or nothing, and they can create something beautiful or something moving from it. But uh, it doesn't sound like that's your perception of. Well, no, I mean, I'm just I'm being like a little self deprecating. Of course, uh-huh. it's like a great it's a great privilege to get to make art, but it is something. You know, I think you do it when you're like kind of looking for something or trying to figure something out. I think it's something you do when you're kind of like unsatisfied in some way. 
But but one of the things I've discovered when I began researching the book is that um, people are actually biologically programmed to to feel loneliness uh, to varying degrees. So like I might feel loneliness more intensely than you do or more intensely than my neighbor does, or my neighbor might feel it way more intensely than both of us. And there's really nothing we can do about that. It's It's really truly biologically programmed into us, which is I think, you know, as part of that is related to introversion and extroversion, but it's also why some people are really comfortable in solitude and other people, you know, completely lose it. So obviously the COVID-19 pandemic transformed our way of life and made mm. many of us uh, quite isolated if we were if we were lucky and privileged enough to be able to work from home, for instance. Mm-hmm. How did it change your approach to this book, uh, if at all? Um, and is there stuff that you like wanted to cover uh, that you didn't get to because you're already kind of most of the way through the book by the time the pandemic hit? I'm just curious kind of what your thinking was around the pandemic and how it relates to this topic. Yeah. So I, you know, I wrote this, like sort of my pitch about this book when I started making it was like, no one ever talks about loneliness because we're all embarrassed to be lonely, but everyone's really lonely. You know, loneliness has been reaching epidemic proportions for a long time. It's been increasing a lot in America and across the world. But then the pandemic hit and all anyone was talking about was loneliness. Like people were incredibly isolated. Um, like you said, if, if, if one was lucky enough to be able to work from home, but in general, you know, gathering stopped, you know, we all know we all lived through it, but I do think that the isolation of the, of the pandemic is very different from the problems of chronic loneliness and sort of like American ideologies that, that create, um, systems in which we're isolated. So I, so, you know, in, I, I was, we were doing copy edits in May. May was, you know, a nightmare in New York. It was, there was a COVID hospital on my block. There were tents up and down the street. You know, the only sound we heard was sirens 24 hours a day. I mean, it was really terrifying. And so I had this feeling like we, I should just, you know, reframe the whole book. And, and my editor and agent really, really were quite insistent that we, keep it as it is, that it, that it shouldn't become a pandemic book. And I'm very glad that we did that because I, like I, I said, I do think the problems of the pandemic, the loneliness of the pandemic is different than, than the sort of long-term slow burn of loneliness that we tend to experience on the day to day. But my hope about the pandemic in terms of loneliness is that it maybe destigmatize loneliness a little bit. And I hope that we can kind of hold on to that. Mm-hmm. You talked about American ideologies that kind of helped mm. to perpetuate loneliness. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so loneliness in America, I think, has so much to do with our individualism. Like there's this sort of make it on our own way of thinking in America. Like we're not a very community minded people, which isn't to say that that's true for everyone. I'm making, you know, gross generalizations. But I think, you know, if we think about like American stories and and the cowboy, you know, the most one of the most American symbols there is. The cowboy is all about being an outsider, about being alone, and there's something like there's something that we suggest that there's something like noble about that. That that's something to aspire to, and I think that's really wrong. And I think we need to really fight against that way of thinking because we we really need each other. And I think the pandemic showed us how much we need each other in a pretty significant way. And, and we forget that, I think, on the day to day, because, you know, we're not like raising the barn with our neighbors anymore the way we maybe once were. And we can feel like we're all individualists, but we really do need each other to survive. There is a component of like ideology in what you're describing. I'm curious if, if there's anything in terms of like institutions or laws or anything like that that you feel kind of predisposes to loneliness, uh, you know, 
in addition to just the myth of the cowboy and other individualistic yeah. uh, notions? That, that's a great question. I mean, I think that certainly the the amount of hours we need to work in America in order to make a living and the ways in which we prioritize um, capitalism, you know, all of those things definitely isolate us from one another. I think workplace cultures have changed a lot. Um, and, you know, we, we also move around a lot more than we used to, both in terms of, in both geographically and in terms of jobs. You know, my dad worked at the same place his entire life, the same company his entire life. Who can say that? Almost no one can say that now. You know, no, almost no millennial can say that now. So I think th- those kinds of things too, and there are great, there are great benefits to that. There are more opportunities, you know, we can talk about all those things too, but we also need to reframe our way of thinking because the, the ways in which we used to build community have changed and we have to respond to that. I, I have some thoughts about that that I want to reflect on with you, if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was reading this, uh, I read this guy's newsletter. His name is Ed Zitron. Mm. He's been writing a lot about this, like, uh, the the push to return back to the office, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And how, like, there's a lot of publications right now, specifically the New York Times, that uh, Ed Zitron believes are publishing uh, office propaganda. Basically, it's like, you know, all these stories about, like, workers, they can't wait to get back into the office. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, in his opinion, that's simply not true. Like, it's it's a... Um, tool of management to try to get you back into the office because like mm-hmm, it's to justify mm-hmm. all the cost of the leases and um, and also to exert more control over the worker. Yeah. Uh, and something that he articulated recently in his, in his newsletter entitled remote work shows us how dependent we've become on our, on offices to live our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote quote, we simply spend more time working or commuting to work, living in places that are convenient for work so that we can go to work and do work. Whatever we considered a community to be, a collection of neighbors and local businesses has become dissolved through a combination of big chains eating up local mom and pop stores and the vast ever increasing cost of real estate. Uh, this all becomes compounded with the fact that there are simply more people than there used to be. More people want to buy a house, more competition by house, more people are having to move more, which means less consistency in the community, which means a community never really forms end quote. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Yeah. I, I, I totally it's just, agree with all of that. It's, it's basically like many of the components that we used to use to form a community mm-hmm. have dissolved because of the things that have happened in modern working day life. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I think a lot of people feel like the office is one of the only places they can get those things that they used to have. Totally. Right? I mean, like where do you, especially when you're an adult, like in, you know, you go, there are these systems throughout your life where you are thrown into social settings like school. And then you are sort of thrust into the world and it's like, how do you meet? So how do you make a friendship if not at work or if not through another friend? Like you, it's very difficult to just like move to a new place without a network like that and just begin a relationship in a way that it was, it was perhaps easier. I mean, I also think that we, we sort of like romanticize the past and like maybe it was very difficult 50 years ago to move to New York City and strike up a conversation with your neighbor just as it is now. Maybe it was equally difficult. I, I can't say because I didn't move to New York City 50 years ago. But I do think that some of those social structures, like some of that community engagement has shrunk so much that the only place that we can really make relationships so that we know how to make relationships is at work. I know. And and when I read that, I, it made me feel kind of sad, you know. Uh, that, it's terribly sad. It's horribly sad. <laughs> that that's the case, that we're so dependent on office life for yeah. the other components of our emotional health. Um, it seems really unfortunate. 
And uh, it also keeps us tethered to job situations that might not be the best for us because we don't want to leave our network of uh, our community, really. Totally. A hundred percent. Another random thing that this made me think of, by the way, and I promise I'm not going to like read you articles this whole time, <laughs> but there is one other thing that it reminded me of, which is David Roberts, uh, who has written for Vox.com. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote this piece about lawns for his newsletter called Volts. And it's about how uh, like lawns are basically this huge waste of space. Um, and he, he writes, uh, quote, maintaining that swath of green requires enormous amounts of resources and labor. That was the point to show you had those resources. The suburban dream of post-war America was that every white man could join the middle class and afford his own mini feudal estate complete mm-hmm. with its own stable, its own compliance staff, i.e. wife and kids and its own ornamental lawn, end quote. And the idea basically that like we have instead of having more shared spaces like community gardens or things like that yeah. everyone has their kind of own mini feudal estate mm-hmm. um and i think one thing that the pandemic has shown us is that uh single family homes are really inefficient ways of sharing resources with people absolutely like, uh I, I don't know about you but like when the uh, pandemic started my wife and i actually formed a bubble with a friend who moved in right next door <laughs> the three of us saw each other and no one else um and it just made life a lot easier. We could share meals together. Yeah. We had like a social outlet because we could all hang out together. Um, and that just wouldn't have been possible. It's like have, living in a single family home makes that really, really difficult. Totally. Um, and it's not like, it's funny. I have an, uh, a, an editorial coming out in the LA times on uh, Monday about in, against lawns, like a diatribe against why none of us should ever have lawns. But I totally agree with you. I mean, I live in a two-family house, and our downstairs neighbors were our pot during the pandemic. I mean, we had family dinner every week. And those are the kinds of things we should just be doing now. I mean, you know, when I saw the way that mutual aid groups formed, you know, I was very active in mutual aid during the height of the pandemic. Like, that's something that should still be going on now that needs to be happening regardless of whether or not there's an emergency. And, and that's, I think what I find frustrating is like, we really mobilized during the pandemic, not that the pandemic is over, but we really mobilized during the height of the emergency to support each other. I think in some communities, not all, but, but then we were sort of like, okay, that's over. And that's a really wrong way of thinking. I agree completely. Uh, your book, uh, CQ does a really good job of combining personal reflections and, uh, research and science. I'm curious, like how you decided on that approach or if you were even conscious of that approach and kind of, uh, yeah. Can you talk more about yeah. how you combine those different yeah. elements? Not, yeah. None of it was ever conscious, conscious. I think, um, I mean, if I had my way, I probably wouldn't be in the book at all. Like I just love to write about science and like weird facts and things I find interesting. But every time I had a reader read it, they were like, interesting reporting or or interesting (laughs) reading, but like, why are you doing it? Like, why have you assigned yourself this project? And Mm. so I was like, all right, all right, I'll talk about myself. But I, um, it's interesting because I I can't imagine the book without your personal. (laughs) Well, I mean, they were very smart readers. They, they were right. (laughs) They were definitely right. Yeah. But it's, um, you know, I think that's the sort of pleasure about writing nonfiction is that is research. I love research to me is the, the most interesting part because you're, as a writer, you're kind of getting access to other people's minds, which is usually more interesting to you than your own mind because you're in your own head all the time. And it just takes you places that you didn't know the book would go. And and you sort of read one thing and it opens something up for you. And then you, you reach towards this other thing. And all of a sudden you're 
you're so far away from where you thought you were going to go, which is great because it's better than where you plan to go. Uh, in conducting research for the book, is there one thing you found that really surprised you that you, you didn't anticipate? Because you were just talking about how sometimes the research takes you in a whole different direction. Is there an example yeah. of that? Well, yeah. I mean, like I didn't, I didn't ever expect that I was going to write about the art of Yayo Kusama or something like someone like that. You know, I mean, I, I was a fan of hers. I'd seen her show before I started writing the book, but I, but I didn't anticipate thinking about her through the lens of loneliness. But I think that's also, there's a, there's a phrase for this. There's a really great phrase about how once you start thinking about something, you see it everywhere. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, uh, something like confirmation bias or something like that. Yeah, right? something yeah. like that. Here, yeah. actually, I have, I have it written down. Let me let me find it. But it's um. But I found that you know suddenly then like, I was thinking through art, all the things I loved, a television show, an an artist, something like that. I was thinking through it all through the lens of loneliness because it's what I was thinking about. Um, and so I think that's that's sort of the pleasure is like you get you like basically have to live inside a project in order to make it alive, to make it work. A frequency illusion, it's called. Mm, frequency, frequency illusion. Frequency illusion. It's, it's a cognitive bias in which after noticing something for the first time, there is a tendency to notice it more often. And and I definitely, it's like you see loneliness everywhere once you start looking for it, just like you might see see sort of any obsession everywhere because it's just on your mind. And uh, can you relate that to Yayo Kaisama specifically? Like what, what was it yeah. about her work that made you feel like the loneliness related to it? Well, she, you know, she, Yayo Kaisama often called the most famous artist in the world. Like she is a very isolated person. She's been institutionalized for most of her life. She suffers from debilitating uh, mental illness, but she, her work is so much about, um, it's so much, it's a, it's a critique of narcissism. And so in a lot of ways, a critique of, of looking at oneself. And I thought it was so fascinating the way her work has become sort of like this Instagram fodder. Like she's become so famous because people wait in line to take pictures of themselves within that space, which is just like a very sad, lonely thing to me. I mean, there is something kind of lonely about a, about a selfie, you know, there's like, mm -hmm. of course I'm projecting a lot onto that, but, but it feels, you know, sort of dystopian and and I'm just kind of curious about her perspective as from a complete place of isolation. Let's talk about that real quick. Like, I, I don't disagree with you, but I just would <laughs> like to hear you elaborate on it. Like, why is a selfie dystopian? Well, it's like there, I, I should say that not the selfie itself, but the proliferation, how prolific they are. Uh -huh. I mean, there is something like, you know, it's like that pink wall in LA that's the most frequently visited tourist attraction. It's just a pink wall, but people go to take pictures of themselves. Like mm -hmm. there is something like we were all, we've all just been like taken over by, you know, like by some alternate life force that's like making us do all of these ridiculous things. It's like, wh why? You, like, like the humans just, are serving the algorithm. Yeah, totally. Right, basically. Yeah. yeah. Like we've just become, like we've reframed our entire way of moving through the world. Yeah. And, and for what? Like nothing that people can really clearly articulate unless exactly you know, unless you are in a professional influencer, maybe. Right. Yeah. But even then, like, what are you making? Like and again, I, I, I don't mean to insult an influencer. I mean, like I said, I think there are a million ways to be an artist. There are tons of artists on Instagram. But I just think that sometimes there is something sort of depressing about it because you feel you know, I mean, there's been a million things written by people who've studied it much more closely than I have about how you feel like a kind of addictive rush when you're posting something and you're trying to get a response and then it feels 
like a letdown if that response isn't what you thought it was. And I think, I think I do actually think that social media can be a tool for connection. And I think sometimes we over, we overblow its, its risks in terms of isolating ourselves from one another, but it isn't a stand in for interpersonal face-to-face relationships. And so that's, I think where it becomes troubling is when we, when we're spending pretty much all of our time interacting with people in, in that medium rather than IRL. (laughs) I'm having a really uh, interesting experience with my brother these days. He just mm-hmm. had a kid uh, like six months ago, and he has not posted any photos of his baby online. Oh yeah, uh, for you know, uh, uh, for many reasons. One of which is like uh, he doesn't believe it teaches the child a good lesson about consent if you post mm-hmm. the photos online without mm-hmm. them knowing about it. Um, but. Instead, he's been sharing photos via like iMessage thread with the family. Yeah, and it's yeah, and it's just like, huh? It it feels like a little more special. Yeah, when it's a photo or a video that's shared with just the family than like it posted on Instagram. You know, I don't know. Well, it's like intimacy. Yeah, Yeah. it's like you're. It's like he's saying this is something that's for you, and I want you to see it because you matter to me. Like that's I think where where social media becomes. I mean, that's one of the benefits of social media is that it is for everyone. But the other part of that is then it's like, what is that? How 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 does one define a community in that space? And there are a lot of online communities that are really essential. Like I have a, a, a very dear friend of mine who's a full-time caretaker for his mother who has Parkinson's and they, their entire network is through social media because she's doesn't, she has a lot of mobility issues. So she connects to people through the internet and without the internet, she would be catastrophically more lonely than she is. It gives her a really, really, really important space. And that's true for a lot of people if they're geographically isolated or, you know, have friends who are people of color in small white towns who really need the internet to connect. So I don't mean to, I think that sometimes we do disparage it too much in kind of like a Luddite kind of simple, over simple way. But I do think that what you're saying is really true about your brother. Like there, there is, there is an, there is still a need, even if it still is through a virtual digital space to sort of call out and say, you know, we're a tribe together. Yeah. I think there's something about like the intentionality behind it too, right? Like, yes, totally. It's like, am I sharing this with like a bunch of strangers or am I sharing this with like five people who are like my closest exactly. you know, friends or family? Right. And like, exactly. It yeah. also encourages like a response in a way that social media doesn't. If he's like texting it to you specifically or to your family, yeah. you're probably, you know, you, you don't just hit the like button. You might say something back. You're like creating a discourse. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about social media. One of the things that I really, uh, uh, appreciated about your book was um, it covers social media to some degree. And there is a story you share about something that happened on Twitter. I remember yeah. this when it happened. Do you? Uh, yeah. So this is a, uh, I, a Twitter is a place I spend too much time. And <laughs> Most of us do. One of your chapters deals with the real life story of Karen Johnston, mm. who tweets, who tweeted from the username Scancouver. I guess mm-hmm. she, she tweeted stuff that would come across the police scanner in Vancouver, yeah. if I recall correctly. Yeah. Van- uh, Vancouver, Washington, not Vancouver, Vancouver Washington, Canada. Right. Yeah. So then she was live tweeting like, oh, there's been an accident. And then like her uh, husband had died and she had accidentally live tweeted it. Or yeah. she didn't know that it was her husband that was dying when she was tweeting yeah. about the accident. And... Uh, I remember this one happened because it was like fairly early on in Twitter days. Um, it was like it was like early on in Twitter. Like I think Twitter had been around for a while, but it was early on when people had really started to adopt it. Yeah, you know, it was like yeah. Twitter was finally a kind of a thing. And 
the the part of the story that I didn't know about was when the internet basically turned on her afterwards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, because at one point, <laughs> it's so. And reading it, by the way, it's so sad to read it right now because it's like horribly tragic. Yeah, because she basically started getting all this attention mm-hmm. on Twitter because of the fact that she had live tweeted her husband's death. At one point, she said, "Quote." I know it's petty, but I went from 567 followers to over 1,300. Hashtag in shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she tweeted that like after she started getting a lot of followers from yeah. the fact that she was going viral a little bit from this tweet. Yeah. And that's when everyone was like, how freaking dare you? Basically. Yeah. Right. Like, how yeah. dare you think about that at a time like this? And just as quickly as they had offered their sympathy and kind words and condolences, they started trashing her and kind of, um, you know, dogpiling, you know, like totally. we didn't have words like canceled or, you know, things yeah. like that back then. Um, uh, but that's kind of what they were doing, you know, the, the equivalent of that. Totally. Uh, I mean, it's like, that's, that's what the internet does. Like it changes on a dime. And, you know, I just thought that, I don't know who, who is anyone to judge the way that someone reacts in the wake of a horrible life altering tragedy. Yeah. Like the, the answer can... is literally everyone on the internet, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think that's one of the reasons that the internet becomes so pro- problematic. And I think that's also why the internet becomes a lonely space is because I think we need to make space for people to, to, to process information the way they need to. And, and just because that might look different for one person than it does for another, who cares? Like, what is that, what did any, what did that have to do with anyone's life other than hers and her family's, you know? And I, I guess I, I just found that to be so kind of emblematic of, of, I think the, the problems of the internet is the way, you know, everybody gets to be a critic. Yeah. And kind of the, the flip side of that is basically that, uh, the internet can be very depersonalizing, right? To tie it back yeah. to the theme of the book, right? right? Is that totally. like the this is this woman, Karen Johnson, is not a woman, is not a fully formed person yeah. in people's minds. She yeah. is like an idea, right? She's an mm-hmm. idea of a human that one day she was a good idea and the next day she was a evil or bad idea. It was and actually now we can, all like, one day. Her. It was the same day. Yeah. Yeah. It can it can turn really quickly. Really quickly. Yeah. Internet. Um, yeah. But yeah, I thought that was it's the story whole story is chilling for a wide variety of reasons. Yeah. Uh, but the part about like everyone turning on her, I thought was actually, you know, one of the most upsetting um, because it just shows that, uh, uh, yeah, people don't reflect on the fact that there's someone else on the other side of the keyboard. Basically. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. A lot of uh, our understanding about the idea of loneliness and the importance of nurturing comes from someone called Harry Harlow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you write quite a bit about Harry Harlow in the book. Can you talk about Harry Harlow's experiments and why you felt they were so significant to our understanding yeah. of loneliness. So Harry Harlow is a very famous scientist. He did the um, the studies on monkeys about maternal love. It was called the surrogate mother study. If if you took psych in high school, you you've heard about it. It's the um, basically the the babies were removed from their mothers at birth and then placed in the cage with two fake inanimate wire mothers, and one was made of wire and dispensed milk. And the other was made of cloth and was like much more comfortable and cozy. And that mother didn't dispense milk. And the the point of the study was to see if it was true the way that scientists thought at the time, which was that babies only lo- human babies only loved their mothers because they disp- they they gave them milk, they gave them food. 
And Harry wanted to either prove or disprove that, Harry Harlow. And so they assumed, okay, if this is true, then they'll they'll love the the wire mother rather than the soft mother. And the opposite was true. Like they became like addicted to the cloth mother and tried to get comfort from her and would just rush the wire mother very briefly to get food. And so this was a very important revelation. It led to all kinds of studies and understanding about how children are raised at the time. The understanding was that we shouldn't coddle, you know, cuddling is coddling and that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too affectionate towards our children because it'll make them soft. It won't let them develop into fully functioning adults. This is when you, you know, you, you saw, you, you know, you see photos of like cold orphanages with kids then who don't know how to like laugh or play because they've not been properly socialized or, or shown affection. And so his studies really changed the way we think about everything in terms of affection and love before before Harry Harlow science didn't really even use the word love they used the word proximity so he did these really essential things what happened though uh, as his career progressed is he really became this kind of stereotypical mad scientist character he became kind of like obsessed with replicating the feelings of isolation in monkeys so he he really tortured these animals for for decades he created something called the pit of despair which was like an uh, it was a vertical chamber apparatus where the monkeys would go at the bottom and not be able to make their way out and they wouldn't interact with any other animals or humans for uh, sometimes well over a year and just just really like he just he kind of went darker and darker and darker into these um these like torturous devices like he developed all these all these basically different torture techniques for these monkeys to see what loneliness looked like and to see what depression looked like and i just became obsessed with him like i i read everything i could find that he'd ever written i read everything about him that that i could find that had been written and i just tried to understand kind of how that process happened one of the things that i think is really compelling about his story is this idea of he was only able to help us understand the value of love and affection mm -hmm. through torturing these animals. Totally, which is essential to us becoming well-adjusted adults who can also provide love and affection to other people. It's it's completely essential. I mean, one thing that's been really interesting after the since the book has been out is the response to that section because people have been really upset by it and like really um, disturbed, which I get. It's super disturbing. Um, and, but I think that's also why it's interesting. But I think one thing that has interested me is the way that there's been kind of a response about, oh, I don't want to look at this animal torture. But really the whole book is about the way that humans are tortured by isolation. And it's like that has not been as upsetting to people as as imagining a, an animal being tortured. And I don't think animals should be tortured. I'm not suggesting that. But I do think it's interesting the way that we can sort of identify sometimes with animals more easily than we can with other humans. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe part of it is, uh, it's certainly true. Like what you're saying, like that's very widespread that yeah. like people, you know, if an, and if a dog dies in a movie, like people exactly. deeply upset. Yeah. if you kill like a hundred <laughs> humans in that movie, yeah, like no like, one cares. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I think part of it though is like the, that, um, the animals have no choice in the matter. Right. Yeah. Whereas like humans theoretically 
can can extricate themselves from from the situation. Or well, if- they can't though. I mean, I think that's actually one of the things. I know what you're saying, and it's true that you know monkeys placed in cages by a mad scientist have much less chance choice than you or I do <laughs> about right, you right. know. Well, that's what I was going to get to. Is like, yeah, yeah, you're saying they can't. So like, let's elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, you asked earlier about things that surprised me about the book, and. I think the mechanisms of loneliness and how trapped it makes us were a, an, an enormous surprise. Like, I think there's this attitude for if you're lonely, it's like, oh, you just need to go hang out with someone. That solves the problem, which is a, a really uh, flawed and simplistic version of loneliness uh, or an understanding of loneliness. But basically, once we're lonely for a long enough period of time, we enter a state called hypervigilance, which is a, like we've had it, it was an evolutionary term tool to keep us alive, basically, if we were alone for too long. Because in when we were early human, when we were an early human, like kind of like wandering the plains looking for, you know, a, whatever giant animals were alive at the time, what were those things called? Woolly mammoths. We're looking for a woolly mammoth <laughs> to hunt or whatever. Like we needed to, we needed a group to do that. And if we were alone, that was quite dangerous because an animal could come attack us. We could get you know, we could not be able to start a fire and we would freeze to death, whatever. So when we're alone for too long, um, our brain actually can't differentiate between that feeling and um, physical pain. So it's like a major alarm bell. It's, it sends stress hormones all throughout our body. It's, it's, tr- it's trying to propel us back towards one another. So if we're in that state for too long, we, uh, we enter a state called hypervigilance in which we become um, actually resistant to connection at all because we are it's basically just kind of like a flaw in evolution because our lives now are so different from how they were then. You know, we work in office jobs now. We spend a lot more time alone. It's very different from like our hunter-gatherer days. So what, so basically what happens is we perceive rejection before rejection actually occurs. So it keeps us in a state where I might not want to reach out to you because I think you don't want to hear from me, or I might think that you're um, going to hurt me or you're going to, um, or you have negative intentions about me. So like, that's a really dangerous place to be. And that's where it becomes really difficult to even think about how do we solve that problem if someone is in this heightened state? How do you, how do you how do you sort of rescue someone from that place? Well, speaking of rescuing or or solutions, I, I think ultimately the book is quite hopeful. But Thanks. I am curious, like what your hope is that people will take away. You know, um, many people reading this book maybe statistically are probably quite lonely, right? And kind yeah. of. Uh, what are you hoping people will leave this book feeling? Do you think you hope they'll feel empowered or just have a deeper understanding of the causes of loneliness or the effects of loneliness? Uh, what are your thoughts on what you want people to take away? It's a great question. I mean, I of course want people to read it and feel less lonely. I mean, I felt less lonely when I was done with the book than when I started it because I understood how widespread loneliness was. I mean, it's probably the most, I write in the book, it's one of the most universal things we can feel. I, I believe that, you know, scientists say it's going to be an epidemic in America by 2030. Um, we need to do something about that. We need to fix this because one of the things we haven't discussed yet is that loneliness is really dangerous. Loneliness will kill you, basically. Like you you um, die much sooner when you're lonely. You are much less likely to be able to fight heart disease or cancer or infection or all of these things. And so we really, it does very dangerous things to our bodies. And we're not we're not as good to each other when we're lonely. We we like I said, we might perceive um, threats when they're not there. So really, it's a it's an emergency, and it's something we need to solve. And so I hope that 
that readers recognize that and try to do what they can to solve the problem, which isn't to say I know how to solve the problem. I think the, the best place to start is that the problem with loneliness is that sometimes when we feel it, we feel an impulse to further isolate rather than to reach out because we enter that state. Like I talked about where I'm like, oh, David doesn't even want to hear from me. He thinks I'm a loser. He doesn't, you know, he hasn't texted me in a week. Like he doesn't want to hang out. And so, and then you might feel the same way about me when I don't reach out to you. So I think the main, main thing, the simplest thing I think we can do is when we feel lonely, just reach out to somebody. Are there any sort of steps you personally have taken in your life, either since the book started or before then, to combat loneliness in your own life that you'd recommend for other people? I think I've gotten more, you know, the the strange thing about the process of writing this book is like we mentioned, the pandemic hit right at the end of it. And so it's hard for me necessarily to track whether it was the process of making the book or the pandemic that really changed a lot of my behavior. But I became much more socially and uh, community, much more socially involved in my community than I was before. You know, I, I mentioned mutual aid. Um, you know, I do a lot more stuff like that. I'm, I talk to my neighbors a lot more. I spend a lot more time, you know, outside kind of like chatting over the fence, you know, in a way that, that I didn't before. And so I make a lot of time for that. And it's hard for me to know whether or not that's, that was a reaction to the pandemic. Cause I hear a lot of stories like that of like, I'd never talked to my neighbor, even though I'd lived here for 20 years. And, you know, now we talk on the stoop or something like that. So it's hard for me to know, but I think that, um, that's a really important thing that we can do is just become more invested at the, a really hyper-local level. Indeed. Kristen Radke is the author of Imagine Wanting Only This and is the current art director of TheVerge.com. Her work has appeared in places such as The New York Times, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, Vogue, and NPR.org. Her new book, Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness, can be purchased right now at bookshop.org or at your local independent bookseller. Kristen, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks for having me, David. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. This is the part of the show each week where we recommend something we've been watching, listening to, reading, eating, drinking, etc. This week, I want to recommend an article by Jennifer Senior over at TheAtlantic.com. It's called What Bobby McGilvain Left Behind. Grief, Conspiracy Theories, and One Family's Search for Meaning in the Two Decades Since 9-11. Obviously, the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 occurred in the last week or so. And for me, uh, I have a lot of mixed feelings about 9-11 and how we as a country responded to it. Uh, It was obviously a huge tragedy, and the way in which we responded to it Uh, both culturally, emotionally, militarily, is not something that I am particularly proud of, especially in light of the fact that currently we're losing uh, the number of people that we lost in 9-11 about once every couple of days from the pandemic. And the reaction in the media is not quite the same. And I think it's worth asking why that is. And there's many reasons uh, amongst which, you know, Nine eleven was a discrete event. Nine uh, eleven was something that was done to us, whereas the pandemic is largely something that we are inflicting on ourselves in a variety of ways. But uh, I thought this article over at theAtlantic.com, what Bobby McIlvain left behind, was so valuable because what it does is it traces what happened to one man's family uh, after that man died uh, in the nine eleven attack, 
and you realize the impact that one life has and, and how much a loss like this can ripple, not only throughout different people, but through decades. It's obviously something that's very relevant given my conversation with Kristen today. Anyway, uh, check it out at theatlantic.com. It is very worthwhile. It's called What Bobby McGillivan Left Behind. I'll link to it in the show notes. Here's what Kristen Radke had to recommend this week. Here's another thing that has really been getting me through this tail end of the pandemic, which is watching reruns of ER. And I think that ER is like the best show that's ever been made and everyone should watch it. I mean, I still think it's like a really unsentimental, like a beautiful uh, form of storytelling. But I also think, you know, to tie it back to community, it's also like a microcosm of the community and it's people supporting each other and taking care of each other. I also, during the pandemic, got really obsessed with Call the Midwife for the same reason, because I think we just need to take care of each other. So I think maybe I'm drawn to media of people doing that. That's it for Culturally Relevant today. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. If you want to support this podcast, obviously there's the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot. Thanks to simplecast.com for supporting and powering this show. Simplecast is a great podcast management and analytic solution. If you're looking to start a podcast, check them out at simplecast.com. This episode was edited and produced by me, David Chen. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with a new episode of Culturally Relevant.